Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Right. Just to say, it's great to be back here. I think, uh, like I was saying, the last time I was here about a year and a half ago, um, and I think I had Chris Frost with me, but it's great to see there's quite a few new faces here as well. There's a lot of faces I recognise, Chris and Anna, a lot of you guys, I recognise your faces, and there's lots of new faces here, and uh, it feels like really Doncaster is an extension of the family in some respects. I've been here quite a few times now, it just feels like this is part of the family, coming across here just feels very much at home, uh, very much of who we are uh, as a church, is kind of working together. Um, unfortunately, Kate couldn't be with me this morning. She would love to have been here. Kate's my wife, uh, but she's having to work. Uh, which actually, I think she's probably secretly happy she doesn't have to hear me speak again. Because when it comes to me preparing preachers, I tend to go through them about four or five times back home, and then before I bring them on a Sunday morning. So she's probably uh, quite glad that she doesn't have to listen to me speak all over again. Uh, but this morning, I really felt that God wanted to speak to us uh, about finding strength in Him, about Him being our rock. And uh, actually, if we feel like we've blown it, uh, we can still find strength in Him. If we feel like we're in the midst of one of the worst situations of our lives, we can still find strength in Him. He wants to give us strength. So that's what I'm going to be speaking about this morning. I'm going to be looking at one particular uh, passage in the book of 1 Samuel. So it's great to hear people quote from it this morning, that book. So I'll be going into that a bit later on. But I just thought it would be great to pray. And I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come, to kind of really speak to us. So let's just be receptive to God now. Let's just be receptive to receiving uh, what God's got for us. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, we want to thank you that it's living, Lord, that it's active. Lord God, that it takes effect of our, in our lives. Lord, it changes us. Lord, it shapes us. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you're, you're not uh, disinterested in us. Lord, you're not far off. But Lord, you're close. You want to speak to us here this morning. Lord God, I thank you for your spirit, Lord, that your presence is here amongst us. And I just pray as I speak that you will continue to move. Lord, as you have done in the worship time, you continue to move amongst us. And Lord, we do expect, Lord, uh, Lord God, for you to move, Lord. That's what your word says. And uh, we just pray that you would come and change lives. And uh, we just have a great time in your presence here this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Fantastic. So I just really want to start by setting the scene this morning. And to be, to be able to do this, I need us to imagine... A picture that is sadly probably very familiar to us these days. It's a scene that we, it's a picture we would have seen uh, on our TV screens many times before. It's a picture we would have seen maybe in the newspapers, uh, in magazines, and certain films. And it's a scene of uh, desolation. It's a scene of destruction, and it's a scene of despair. And you're probably thinking, why is this man coming to us and setting such a miserable picture? But it'll become evident later on. Uh, it's wartime. The enemy has attacked, and now they've gone. So they've been, they've gone, and they've left in their wake a town left in tatters, a town left in ruins. Homes have been reduced to rubble. There's smoke still rising from these ruined homes, and there's chaos in the streets as people are wondering where their homes are gone, where their families have disappeared to. And we're left focusing on one man who's looking disheveled, He's looking battered and he's looking heartbroken and he's standing in the middle of a pile of bricks that was once his home. And we see that this guy is sobbing out loud. 
He doesn't know where his family are. He doesn't know whether they're dead or alive. And he doesn't know what to do next. And it's a horrible picture, isn't it? And you know the, what kind of picture I'm describing? It's one where, our, where we're moved, where we care for this guy. Actually, we're probably quite secretly glad we're not in this guy's shoes. And it's a familiar scene. It could be anywhere in the world right now. It could be Afghanistan. It could be Iraq. Or actually this week, looking at the events this week, it could even be somewhere like Mumbai in India, with the events that have happened. But the picture in my mind this, this morning isn't any of these places, but it's of a little town called Ziklag. It's a great name, Ziklag. But it's a little town called Ziklag, which is a Philistine town about 40 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And it's actually 3,000 years ago. And the man standing in the rubble of his home is David, the future king of Israel. And we're looking at this guy at one of the lowest points in his life. And we're going to be looking at this story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's going to detail in a bit we're going to be reading at, uh, through this and seeing uh, how David got to this state. But before we do that, it's important we have a bit of background information so we know uh, what was leading up to this story. So it's important that we know that David is running for his life from Saul. Saul is the current king of Israel, and Saul is jealous of David. He can see God moving on David's life, and he knows it won't be long before David surpasses him as the king of Israel, until David takes his place. David has actually already been anointed to lead Israel. Samuel has anointed him, and he has been described as a man after God's own heart. And he's a man of courage, and he's a man of faith. Which is the kind of people, which is the kind of guy, we, kind of people we want to be. People of courage and people of faith. And Saul is actually a guy who's the complete opposite. Saul is a guy who's obsessed by what people think about him. And in this, he lives his life out of fear rather than faith. And so now Saul, in his insecurity, has very much uh, taken things into his own hands, and is now throwing all he's got into pursuing David, tracking him down with a view to killing him. And he still very much has the authority of a king. He still acts like a king. He still has the authority that comes with that. So David couldn't kill Saul. All he could do was flee. So this is where we're picking up the story. And so David has the bright idea of taking himself and his family. And uh, he has a loyal band of 600 men who follow him everywhere. And he takes his men, 600 men and their families, deep into hostile territory to get away from Saul. It's a place where he knew Saul would never go. Because actually, what, because actually the Philistines were uh, the enemies of the Israelites. There's no way that Saul would want to go deep into Philistine territory to try and find David. It's a dangerous place. It's hostile. In fact, he would never have guessed that David would have gone there himself. But David, in actual fact, had cozied himself up to one of the leaders of the Philistines, a guy called King Asish. And uh, to be able to have freedom of access in his country, to be able to, uh, to stay in, in Philistine territory, he had offered to fight this guy's battles for him and to give him more resources. And in return, this king had given, this, had given David and his men and their families a town called Ziklag, where they were to stay and make it their base, and where they would actually attack other settlements from. They would actually attack uh, the enemies of the Philistines from this place. And in fact, David had actually, in, in David's keenness to get on board with the, this uh, king, this Philistine king, he had actually gave the impression that he was actually willing to fight his own people. He was actually willing to fight the Israelites. 
But secretly, David had lied. He was double-crossing this king because he was actually going out undercover and was attacking the friends and the allies of the Philistines. And uh, it's funny, isn't it? After a while, you you would have thought this king would have guessed what was happening. David was actually going out attacking all these other towns that were the friends of the Philistines. Actually, this king of siege was totally oblivious to what was going on. He had no idea what David was doing. So much so that when all the leaders of the Philistines came together, they decided to go and attack Israel and declare war on Israel. Actually, one of the first people that the king, this king Asish, called up to go and fight with the Philistines against the Israelites was David and his men. And he was asking the Israelites to come and fight against the Israelites. So David actually agreed to this. And uh, I don't know what his plan was. We're not told that much. But he actually trekked for three days with his 600 men to the front line of the battle where he would face the Israelites. And having got there, however, we just see that the other leaders of the Philistines weren't as keen as this king was to have David and his men fight against their own people. Unsurprisingly enough, you know, that's not the kind of thing that they would do. So he sent David and his men all the way back to Ziklag and it's here that we pick up the story. So, 1 Samuel, chapter 30. In fact, we start at 29, chapter 29, verse 11, and read down. So it said this, So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and all who were, who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept. They wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And I have to say, this is probably one of the lowest points in David's life. He's going through the mill here. You know, when we think of David, we probably think of uh, a great leader, a mighty king, a warrior, a a mighty king whose legacy is his faithfulness to God. But at this point in time, we're actually seeing a guy who's in his 20s. He's a refugee. He's an outlaw. He's miles away from home. And suddenly, David, this guy, is a leader who has failed badly. And he seems totally doomed. He's failed his family. He's failed his men. He's failed himself. And he's failed God. In his haste to please this leader of the Philistines, David has made the fatal error of leaving no army behind, none of his men behind, to protect the women and the children left behind at Ziklag. You know, it's a schoolboy error. And now having spent three days on the road to get back to Ziklag, David and his men have just arrived to find their homes totally burnt out, totally ruined by the raid from the Amalekites, and their families have totally disappeared. And you just get this picture, don't you? Then just returning from the front line on this journey. And they're looking into the distance. And they just see this town in the distance. And they see the smoke rising. And they just see all their homes are burnt down. And you just imagine all these men just running back to their homes. Just to find that overnight, 
all of their homes had disappeared. 600 homes had disappeared and 600 families had disappeared. And so what happens next is that we get the inevitable. You know, David would have been expecting this, the backlash. David's men started to turn on him. They blamed him to the extent that they talked about stoning him. They wanted to kill him. You know, after all, it was David's fault. You know, this wasn't a peaceful country they were living in. Actually, this was a very violent country. They were living in hostile territory. And so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be surprising that actually their town would have been raided. You know, things like this were the norm. And David had made a massive error of judgment by leaving their families as exposed as they were. And he would have known this. His men would have known this. And it cost them so badly. And I'd like us to put our, ourselves in David's shoes. To think all about all the things that were going through his mind at this time. And I think there's quite a few things that would have been uh, bugging him at this time. And the first one is this. His own personal sense of loss. You know, David's wives and children had gone. They'd been kidnapped. And he didn't know whether they'd been raped or killed. I suppose the best he could hope for was that they'd been sold as slaves. So he had this. He had his own sense, personal sense of loss. He also had his own personal sense of failure. You know that horrible feeling we all get when we let someone down? Well, can we imagine what it's like to let 600 people down all at the same time? You know, those that trusted you, those that were willing to give their lives for you, actually he let down to the extent that now their families have been taken away. So it's that. So David had his own personal sense of loss, his own sense of failure. He also would know his own sense of isolation. You know, things weren't going well for him. He was first rejected by Saul. He then had to live in a foreign country, miles away from home. He was living amongst their traditional enemies, the Philistines. And now his own men were rejecting him and talking about stoning him. You know, how many of us feel, uh, how many of us have that feeling where you feel like the whole world is against us? We feel like the whole world is on our backs. You know, usually this isn't uh, much more than a feeling. It's something that our minds conjure up. But actually for David, there's something of a reality in this. It felt there would have been 600 men totally against him. He was on his own. And at this moment in time, David had no one standing with him. David would also have sensed the hopelessness of the situation. The Amalekites had camels. At this time, they would have been making a speedy getaway. And in the meantime, David and his men didn't have camels. They were on foot. And, and on top of all that, they'd just returned from a three-day trek from the front line. So they would have had no energy to go after the Amalekites. You know, there was no way David was going to be able to catch these raiders. And there would also have been the sense of guilt that David would have felt. You know, he knew he'd been lying. He'd been playing a double game with this king of Sish. He was pretending to attack the Israelites to gain the Philistines' favour. Whilst at the same time, he was actually attacking other towns, not remotely connected to Israel. He even attacked the Amalekites, the same people that attacked uh, them just now. And he killed their women and children. So there is a sense of poetic justice here. I'm sure that wouldn't have been lost on David. He would have been feeling, actually, that, you know, I deserve this. He would have been sensing, actually, there's probably some God's, God's judgment in this. You know, you know, he would have been sensing, I've lied, I've deceived, and I've, I've killed for my own personal gain. And now David was experiencing firsthand exactly what he had inflicted on others. And he would have felt that God was teaching him a lesson. So I think we can just start to get a sense of all the things that were going through David's head at this time. 
all the things that would have been bugging him. And uh, it's just good to put ourselves in this man's shoes. You know, how would we react in a similar situation? Hopefully none of us will have to go through this. But how would we react if we were in David's shoes? You know, would we have given up? Or uh, would we have given way to despair? Perhaps there are even those of us who have given up. That although you haven't experienced the level of failure that David experienced here, we have let our past failures take us completely out of action. We let our past failures affect us so much that it stopped us playing a part in God's church and what he wants to do with us. We've limited ourselves uh, with regards to gifts. We stopped receiving from God because we actually think that we're not worthy enough because we failed. We've totally discounted ourselves from getting involved. You feel like a failure. feel like you failed others. Maybe a whole life's been a failure. And so what good could you possibly do? And I know that there's been times in my life, in my life where I, feel like, I felt like this. I remember the first time I preached was about seven or eight years ago. And I was really nervous. And I got up to speak. And I probably rambled on for 20 to 25 minutes on something I didn't know what on earth I was saying. It didn't make any sense at all. I went completely off my notes. And it was one of those moments in my life where I just wanted the ground to swallow me up. Do you know those feelings? Where you're just standing at the front. You're just like, oh Lord, please, please just zap me out of here. And yeah, just like that. And it really took me about another seven years to get over that. You know, to step out of the boat again because of my past failure. You know, and even if it's not uh, something involving our own sin, uh, and it's just, a, it's just a mistake we've made, or it has just been something that like I was just saying in my nerves, it does have the potential to scar us when we do fail. We can let this affect us and negatively shape who we are. And for David, this too, what we are seeing in front of us now, was a life-defining moment. He's not king yet. God's training him to be king. He's got a lot of God really wants to use him. And actually his response now, at this time, what we're reading in 1 Samuel, would undoubtedly shape who he would become. This was a life-defining moment. How he responded to this was so important. John Maxwell, a famous American, says this, It's not a matter of if we fail. It's only a matter of when we fail. And how we handle failure when it comes. You know, we're all going to fail at some time in our lives. But it's actually how we deal with it, which is the important thing. And it's here that we are seeing David at his moment of complete and utter failure. He's totally blown it, and his reputation is in tatters. I actually think the angels would have been pausing at this moment in time. They would have been standing still, and they would have been asking, quest- they would have been asking the question, you know, what happens now? What happens to this man of courage? How is this man who's after God's own heart going to respond to this horrible situation? He's failed so badly, what's he going to do? And there would have been a hush, I reckon, as these angels are waiting to see how David would have responded. And what we see happens next is that we see how a man after God's own heart responds when he fails. In here we see the great spiritual reaction of true faith. And in verse 6, we see two amazing statements side by side. It says this, David was greatly distressed. David was greatly distressed. It even says that he wept early on. And then it says, but. And this has to be one of the biggest buts in the Bible. It says, but David found strength in the Lord 
his God. And if there's just one thing that I want us to take away from this morning, if there's just one thing that I want us to remember, is this verse. That no matter how dire our situation, no matter how much we failed, no matter how distressed we are, we can find strength in the Lord our God. So the question I want to spend the remaining time I've got this morning answering is this, how? How did David find strength in the Lord? And similarly, how can we all find strength in the Lord when we blow it? When we know we've failed? And I suppose one answer we could give is to pray. You know, and that's certainly the right answer. In fact, we do find David in the following verses praying. We see an inquiring of God what to do next. But if we look at this passage carefully, we see that's not what came first. What we see, what we see came first was a decision by David to have the right attitude. To not give way to panic, but to think right about his circumstances, to think right about God, and to give the situation to God in prayer. And this is something that we keep on seeing throughout David's life. You know, David was very human. He made some horrendous mistakes. You know, history shows us that. But yet, actually, he was a guy who was able to control his thinking. David was deeply distressed. But he didn't wait to feel better. You know, how many of us in this situation would have just simply burrowed our heads in the sand, you know, waited for the situation to pass, would have given, you know, would have given responsibility to someone else, and stepped down from leadership, you know, passed the buck away and, and run away from the situation. Actually, in David, we see someone who argued with his emotions. He wasn't controlled by him, but he kept coming back to the truth of who God is, and he drew such strength from this. David found strength in the Lord. He stood on what he knew about God, and he put his feelings to one side. This was the way he found strength in the Lord. This was the way he calmed his own soul. This was the way he prepared himself to pray. And this is the discipline we all need. That every time we pray, we remind ourselves of just who God is, the way he sees us, and the way he acts towards us. That's why our church, meet, our church prayer meetings, before we do pray, we, we just spend time worshipping like we have done this morning, just by getting a right perspective on who God is. By, by reminding ourselves of who it is that we're coming, in, what we're coming before. And when we're when we're like David, when we're, when, we panic, when we're tempted to panic and pack it all in, this is how we stay, stay strong, by worshipping God, reminding ourselves, reminding ourselves exactly who he is. And in the Psalms of David, in the Psalms that David wrote and read, you know, his worship songs and his prayers to God, we are provided with great insights into the kinds of things that David was holding on to over and above his emotions. They're fantastic indicators of the way David fought under the most excruciating circumstances, under the most excruciating pressures. They're great indicators of the way David's mind worked. And they're great keys to us of the things that we should be remembering when things go wrong and it's our fault. And the first is this. My God reigns. My God reigns. It's true. Even when we mess up, God's still in control. You know, it can be hard for us to compute this sometimes, can't it? When things seem so chaotic around us. You know, at Ziklag, David must have looked around and he'd seen the rubble, he'd seen the smoke, you know, men crying out loud for their families, you know, complete and utter chaos. But yet he knew in his head 
and he knew in his heart that God is in total control of everything that happens in this world. There's nothing outside of his control. There's nothing that he's unaware of. And there will never be a time where God isn't in control. In Psalm 93, David could confidently say this, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The Lord reigns. You know, we hear this time and time again in David's Psalms. It's not dependent on circumstances, but it's taken as a given. God reigns. He was has been, he was will be, and the world cannot be moved. And if you are going through a difficult time, you know, where you failed and you're tempted to despair, you know, this is a good passage to meditate on. My world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. My circumstances don't change this. I can come before my Father who is in total control. It's great, isn't it? Just knowing this. The whole of scripture is emphatic about this. God is in control of all things. You know, David focused on this. In times of trouble, this is what he focused on to get himself back onto solid ground. My God reigns. Secondly, David knew, so he knew that God reigns, my God reigns. He also knew that my God forgives. In Psalm 130 it says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is total forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. You know, David knew he had failed, but he also knew that God is merciful. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes God as being rich in mercy. In other words, God loves to forgive. He loves to lavish forgiveness on us. He's not stingy in showing forgiveness. He loves to show us his forgiveness. Even when we had gone totally astray. And when he forgives us, he totally forgives. He doesn't keep a record of our sins. And uh, one of the things that probably still strikes up in fear uh, in me today is the memory of school reports. I don't know if any of you can associate with me on this one. Just remembering those dreadful school reports. Now, I used to be a bit of a slacker at school. I used to uh, hate these school reports. You know, for most of the year, I could pretend to my parents that I was the model student. You know, I was getting perfect grades. I was getting on really well with all my teachers. Uh, I had some great friends. You know, I had an IQ of 150. And uh, I, could all, I could make this all up. But actually, then there'd be twice, uh, twice a year, you'd be given these school reports, which would detail all your misdemeanors, all the things you were bad at, all the times you had mucked up, and they'd be given to you so you could give them to your parents. And actually it would shatter all their illusions about you. And I'd hate it. I hate school reports. And the worst thing for me was that my parents would actually keep these school reports. They'd have a little file at home called John's School Reports. And every year they'd put these school reports in there and have a record of all the rubbish things that had been said about me. All these rubbish reports that were saying how lazy and how bad I was. And uh, even now when I go back home, I sometimes look at these, look at these reports to see how bad I was. And I, I just feel like picking them up and burning them, getting rid of them. Because you know, as I read through them, it just screams out to me, you know, John, you're a failure. You know, John, you really are a failure. You think you're any good? You know, remember who you once were. Remember what you did at school? Well, you haven't really changed that much. 
And so this school report is a constant reminder to me of actually how bad I once was. But you know, it's not like that with God. He doesn't keep a record of our sins. In Jeremiah 31, we find God saying, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, God has decided not to remember our sins anymore. When he forgives us, he doesn't file away a record of all the bad things that we've done just to bring up at another time. But actually he chooses not to bring them up. He chooses not to remember them. You know, when God chooses to do something, he sticks to it. And this is actually so liberating, isn't it? Just to know this knowledge. God chooses not to remember our sins. You know, if you've sinned in the past, but actually you've since confessed your sin and turned to Jesus, you can... You, can no longer, you no longer have to view yourself as a failure because there's no record of it. God doesn't see you like that. Perhaps there are those of us here God has given big dreams to in the past. God's given us big vision. God's spoken to us so clearly about how he wants to use us. And then there was actually a time where actually we lost our way and we walked away from God. And actually even though we've since come back to God, we've written off ourselves from ever fulfilling these dreams. Ever, God ever using us like that again. But God actually wants to say to us here today that actually today is a new day. It's a new day. That he still wants to use you. You know, even though David had killed innocent women and children, even though he had lied and deceived others, he could know God's forgiveness. And sometimes in the midst of failure, we can have this terrible sense of guilt, can't we? You know, look at all these people I let down. Look how I've let down God. And we can look at the fallout from what we've done sometimes and have the attitude, you know, I deserve this. I deserve what's happening to me now. It's God's, it's God's punishment. It's God's judgment on me. And we can walk away and we can live our Christian lives with our heads bowed down, with our tails between our legs and write ourselves off from God doing anything with us ever again. Now, I'm a failure. God's never going to use me again. I'm finished. Actually, we need to know what David knew. There is total forgiveness you can start again. And that is why this story is such a great example to, for us. That someone who failed as drastically as David could, could then pick himself, up, pick himself up out of the rubble and eventually become king of Israel and lead God's people. And actually, if this is you, if you can associate with this, if you are sitting here this morning and feel overwhelmed by guilt, totally immersed in, in your feeling of failure, and you're feeling like you have failed, you need to pay attention to this. 1 John 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us. If anyone here feels like you're under God's judgment, feels like you've failed and you deserve it, there is always... There is always forgiveness as soon as we confess our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. There is always forgiveness as soon as we turn to God. It doesn't matter what we've done. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you can be forgiven. And a lifetime's worth of guilt can be wiped away in an instant. Now David knew that God forgives. And he strengthened himself on this knowledge. <clears throat> He would have reminded himself, my God reigns, my God forgives. Also, my God cares. I believe that the man standing in the ruins of his life reminded himself of this. My God cares. David would have drawn such strength from the fact 
that God cares. That he's not disinterested in our situations, but he cares. So much so that he is ever present with us and he is constantly offering to help. All we have to do is accept it. As Christians, we don't have to bury our heads in, our sand, in the sand, stick our fingers in our ears and pretend that this situation isn't happening. Because we have a God who is ever present with us and who is wanting to help. No matter what the situation, no matter how hard things are, God cares for you, he's with you to give you help. And he wants to be a refuge for you. He wants to be your refuge. What's a refuge? A refuge is a place of safety. It's a place where we can find peace in a raging storm. It's a place where we can know absolute security. And in God we have the strongest refuge that there is. And if you're feeling like the world is against you this morning and you feel threatened, you can take comfort from this. God is our refuge. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now when I read this, I love to think of the passion, the directness, the forcefulness that Jesus spoke this in. Jesus is our passionate protector. And we are safe in his hands. He says this, no one can snatch them out of my hand. It's in God's hands that we find refuge. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, David says. Good shepherds don't kill their sheep, do they? They don't let them go astray. When When they go astray, they don't kill them. They go after them. They go in to protect them. And even with his men threatening to stone him, even with the whole world against him, David knew he had a protector, he had a provider, he had a pastor, a carer watching over him and caring for him. In Psalm 46 it says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, we will not fear. And I love this passage. Now to emphasize his point, the psalmist here is thinking of the worst situation he could possibly imagine. That even though the mountains crumble, and the sea might roar and foam. I suppose like a huge tidal wave. And the world ends. You know, it's an apocalyptic nightmare. I know that God's going to help me. Even though all these things are happening. I know that God's going to be there for me. He will be there for me. In other words, I can be fearless. Because I can know that I can count on God to look after me. That he will give me refuge. And he will be ever present for me. There won't be a time where he's not there for me. And so now in Ziklag, when my home has been reduced to smithereens and my family has been taken, I know that God is going to help me. And I'm sure that's what David was thinking at that time. God is going to help me. And God has made his commitment to each one of us. He's made it to me, he's made it to you, and it's unconditional. He has promised to be our shepherd and to protect us. So even in the midst of despair, in the midst of our failure, we can have strength knowing that God reigns, God forgives, And God cares. What else could David focus on? How about this? My God is faithful. 
unlike you and me, David, God, sorry, unlike you and me, God never lets anyone down. Even if they deserve it. God always keeps his word, always keeps his promises, and is always faithful. Psalm 91 says this, Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver and honour him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And there's an English word, isn't there, to describe a statement like this. It's a very simple word, but it's called this. It's called a promise. And God is the only person who can ever trust 100% to keep a promise. He's the only person you can trust and bank on staying 100% faithful to you. you know, David knew this. Where his friends had turned against him, he knew that God wouldn't. That God would stay with him. When God says something, he means it. You know, some of us might have read the book. It's a classic book. It's a very old book. Some, actually, maybe not many of us would have read it. But it's called Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I actually read it. I did a theology degree, so I had the privilege of reading this book. But in it, there's a fantastic scene where the main character, a guy called Christian, comes across a big giant who's imprisoning believers in a place called Doubting Castle. There's people locked up in fear and their insecurities. But actually, Christian manages to get out of despair, out of doubt, out of this castle by using, by using a key called Promise. And that's actually why we need to know our Bibles. Actually, it's why it's not a duty, but it's a blessing. Because if we know all the promises God has made to us, and know that God is faithful to every one of these, we will constantly have fresh hope, we will be freed from doubts, and when our circumstances aren't good, we will have strength to face the future, just like David did. David knew that God was faithful. Again, 1 Samuel... Chapter 30, verse 6. David was deeply distressed, but David found strength in the Lord his God. He found strength by reminding himself of God's character, of his promises, who he is and how he acts. That our God reigns, our God forgives, our God cares, and our God is faithful. David then prayed and God acted on his behalf. He didn't discount himself. He didn't pass the buck to someone else. But God used him to rescue the situation and continue to use David for the rest of his life. So actually, let's just see how the story finishes. So we read up to verse 6 of chapter 30. Let's just read from verse 7 to see how this story ends. It says this, Then David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abithiah brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Now it's interesting actually when you read that, that David couldn't still go directly to God. We're living in Old Testament, this is Old Testament times. Actually we now have the privilege of going directly to God. David went to a priest here. Actually we have the unique privilege of going directly before God. So the priest said, Pursue them. He answered, You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the, uh, the Bezor ravine with some, where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat. Part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. 
he ate it and was revived. For he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, To whom do you belong? And where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerephites, and the territory belonged to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Two wives? <laughs> Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and the herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. You know, this is such an encouraging story. Now, even though David was greatly distressed, even though he had failed so miserably, even though he looked like he was down and out, he was able to find strength from the Lord his God and was able to carry on being used by him for the rest of his life. God turned this situation on its head. And God rescued him from this because he was dependent, or because David was dependent on him. And I want to speak directly to us you know, here this morning. If we're sitting here, we're feeling like a failure. If we've written ourselves off from being used by God because of what we've done in the past, we feel like we've blown it. We can never serve him again like we wanted to in the church or with the gifts that he's given us. We need to know this, that God reigns. He's in control of our situation. He's our great restorer. He can restore us. God forgives. There's nothing that he won't forgive. And he actually totally forgives. He chooses not to remember our sin anymore. He doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't file our reports away. And he cares. He's there for us. He's always there for us. It's the Great Commission, isn't it? Jesus said, go and I'll be with you to the very end of the age. We can know that God is with us. God is faithful. He will never let us down. And we can therefore find strength in God no matter how weak we feel. No matter how much we feel like we failed in the past. No matter what our history, we can depend on God and we can know his strength. And I just really just want to spend a bit of time just praying now, really. And... Uh, just praying for any of us here who do feel weak and do feel like you've written yourselves off from what God's got for you like you've discounted yourself maybe you put like a glass ceiling on how much God uses you because of past sins in your life that God has actually forgiven and I think it would be great to just pray for you so if we could just all stand if we could pray I'm just going to pray if you if when I was speaking that really kind of hit home and you felt that was you, it would be good if you could just be brave enough just to put your hand up. Excellent. Cheers for you. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And it would be good if, for a couple of people just to kind of put your, just to pray for you, just to gather around and lay hands on you. I'm just going to pray out loud. So if you're around these guys, just put your hands on <clears throat> Yeah.
Father, we want to thank you for these wonderful truths, Lord, we've been hearing about this morning. Lord, we were, as we were worshipping you, Lord, we heard about them then. And we've heard about them now for your word. Lord God, that you are a God who is in control. Lord God, you are a God who reigns. Lord God, you are a God who forgives. Lord, you totally forgive us. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that when you say, Lord, the old has gone and new has come, Lord, I thank you that's true. Lord God, that we are new creations in you. And Lord, I thank you that you care, that you're with us. Lord God, and you're faithful to your promises. Lord, your, your promises uh, to make us new in you, Lord God, to make us into a new creation. Lord God, to want to use us. And Lord, we just say, Lord, for these guys now, would you just bless them? Would you fill them with your spirit afresh? I pray that they would have an understanding of their identity in you. Lord, how free they are from their sin. Lord God, how much it has been uh, forgiven by you and not remembered. Lord, it hasn't been filed away in a report somewhere. But Lord, you've totally forgiven it. And Lord, I thank you that you called these guys to a great purpose, Lord. You called them to a great mission to get involved in, Lord God, to be used by you. And I just pray that, Holy Spirit, now you come and bring your gifting. Holy Spirit, that you come and bring your anointing and the freedom that you bring, Lord God, just to be who you've made us to be and to be your servants, Lord God, to be uh, your friends who are there to serve you and to do mission with you, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you bring that knowledge? Lord, where there's uh, head knowledge of that, Lord, I just pray, would you bring that into the heart now? Where people just know right to the core of their being, Lord God, who they are in you, their identity in you, Lord, how secure they are in you and how much you love them. In Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 